Hey, Andrew. Hey, Greg. You got married. I did get married. And uh, and now you you are a, a happily married man. I am very happily married, man. It's all behind you. It is. And that means that we have more time for this. Yes. Lives are getting back to normal. I feel like every time we start one of these, we started with the preface of like, ah, finally, all that bullshit that was keeping us from doing the podcast is behind us. And then three weeks later, we're like, okay, for real now, <laughs> all that bullshit is behind us. I feel like most people understand. You know, I, I'm sure they do. I'm sure no one out there is, is, is checking the days between releases and saying like, eh, these guys, we probably have been drawing too much attention to it. Probably. Uh, so anyway, we have been planning for a very long time, very, very, very long time to talk about this topic. And now we're finally, finally getting there unless, I mean, Nothing's going to happen tonight, right? There's nothing going to interfere. We're going to do it. We're really doing it. We're really sitting down and we're going to talk about villains and the concept of evil. Evil. <laughs> yeah, evil. It's, it's October, which it is, is uh, International Goth Month. So uh, it's official. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and uh, I've been wanting to talk about this for a long time because I've been thinking a lot about evil the nature of evil and villainy and all these things. And uh, we've also talked about it a lot and, and we did something, right? We did more than talk about it. We actually, um, we we kind of did an experiment in possibly the least scientific and most nerdful way. <laughs> but um, before we get there, let's talk about, let's do a little background on the idea of a villain, because when we're talking about fiction, and that's really what this whole podcast project is rooted in, um, the villain is a particular thing. Um, and so I think it's it's good at the, at the outset to kind of define what we mean by villain. So that when we talk about this weird experiment we did, uh, it'll make more sense. So... I think at the outset, in the in the concept of fiction, there are villains and there are antagonists, and they're not always the same thing. So antagonist broadly is just um, another character that kind of is opposed to our protagonist, the character who the story is kind of about. But they don't necessarily have to be evil, right? Like, I guess the example is like a sports movie, the opposite team is the antagonist, but they're not necessarily like evil baby eating monsters. They just want the same trophy that our hero wants and, you know, and they have to compete against each other. Um, and usually in a movie or in a book or whatever, what have you, you know, they, they, they paint the antagonist as being a little bit unsavory to make it a little easier for us to root for the hero and against the antagonist. But a villain is really something else. Yeah. I think that a villain is something special to maybe not unique, but I think very rooted in genre fiction, right? There is, there's very little, I mean, there's some, you know, where the, where are the three categories of like conflict, man versus man, man versus nature, man versus self, I think something like that. Yeah. English class, maybe, I don't know. Uh, but I think that most genre fiction has a villain of some kind. I think it's certainly more common in genre fiction. Um, now there's, I, you know, there's certain things there's, there's exceptions to that. And there's also plenty of regular dramas and things that have villains, but more, I say that the majority of 
non-genre fiction fiction is not usually a villain. Right. Like if you think about a um a romantic comedy where there is the the Baxter, the <laughs> the bad boyfriend that the female lead starts out with and then has to dump in order to be with um I don't know Mark Ruffalo. Um, so, but he's not really a villain. Yeah. He's usually like kind of a shitty guy, but he's not tying anybody to train tracks. You really only see that kind of villain in, yeah, your, your genre fiction. I don't know if you would count crime fiction as genre. Um, yeah. Like war movies, I guess, or like police. Yeah. Like crime police movies, action movies usually have some sort of central villain, but um, they almost, at that point they almost get lumped into some, they're a genre. They're just not the yeah. genre we do. Yeah. Um, Thrillers maybe too, but. Right. Um, Horror but is an interesting one, but we'll get back to that. Well, <laughs> yeah. So in that case, well, again, I think in horror, it's it's the who is a villain is very clearly defined, but often the protagonist antagonist line gets blurred. Like, you know, the example of especially the later uh, Nightmare, Nightmare on Elm Street movies Freddy Krueger is really the protagonist. You're kind of watching and rooting for Freddy, um, but obviously he's a bad guy. Right. Um, uh, same thing with Breaking Bad. Another great example. Walter White is clearly a bad person, but he's the protagonist of the story. Correct. Correct. So how do we define a villain? So I think that what makes a villain when we, you know, when we think about it is it's really about malice and wickedness or evil. Um, that's what makes them a villain versus just a, you know, antagonist. Um, and it's that feeling of, and so I guess the difference is you can have a antagonist that actively hurts people, right? As opposed to just, you know, being on the opposite team of our hero, You've got a, a villain who actively hurts people, but you can still have a villain that is more callous as opposed to evil, right? Again, to go back to the Breaking Bad example, Walter White is callous in that he doesn't really care if he has to hurt people who get in his way, but he doesn't really get a kick out of hurting them. He doesn't derive pleasure from hurting other people or interfering with other people, but a villain really does. It seems like that they... They have a value system or an ethical system that's almost counter to our own. Yeah, I, I, I'm hesitant to totally go down like that. They enjoy hurting people as a part of the definition because I feel like that's a type of villain. But I think there's lots of people who like characters who are villainous who definitely do evil stuff and but maybe don't enjoy it. So. I, I'm trying to think of the best way. There's something about the word villain to me that always implies like some sort of motivation beyond the mundane almost hmm. where, you know, when you're watching Law and Order and the guy who stole something, I guess it's not usually usually it's like murders and stuff, I guess. But <laughs> even that still, it's usually like, oh, you know, it's it's a hmm. it, it's hard where, where you draw the line between like villain just has a little bit more weight to it than other things i even be like you know i wouldn't call i wouldn't call the stormtroopers in star wars villains right i would call darth vader and emperor palpatine villain villains there's almost like you have to have a certain well i think part of the part of the um part of the definition is definitely that they are a driving force in the story 
Interesting. Because if the villain is just like a side quest to the hero or what he's doing, it kind of feels like, I mean, there still can be a villain, but they're not the villain. Right. Um, trying to think of an example here, but so like the goblins that, um, in, in the Hobbit, the goblins they encounter or the trolls or the spiders, those are kind of, they're not really the villains of the story. They're obstacles in our, in our hero's path, but they're not the big bad. Right. And maybe that is a good cat. Like, well, who's the big bad of the story? That I think is one of the closer definition. I think I, I do think that there's a lot of villains that, you know, I'm trying to think of an example, like a more tragic or, you know, uh, maybe someone like, oh, actually, if you check your notes, I made a list of some characters that <laughs> I thought we could look to and, you know, say, oh, this person isn't really, you know, like different examples of different styles of villains. So I'm blanking on a good example, but I do think that there's different types of villains and I try to take a stab at some categories we can talk about then. But I think one thing that we maybe can talk about is we have this greater category of villains in general, which is part of a sub a greater category of perhaps antagonists, although I guess a story could be about a villain and a hero could be the antagonist. But I think that the key with the villain is, yes, some type of motivation and plan, even if it's nonsensical, but like to have a driving ploy to themselves and to this uh, factor in the story. Right. They have a, they have their own motivation and they have their own, they have agency in the plot, I think is, is the important factor. It's about agency is that a villain is really positioned in the story that they can drive the plot forward. The goons, the henchmen, they do not drive the plot forward. They're not making decisions that, um, alter the course of the story. They show up, they fight the, they fight the hero. That's it. There's also something about almost like a, a, a place of power or um, equity. Like there's very few villains of any worth or value that are like weaker or lamer or like, I don't know, like part of what makes them the antagonist of the story is that they are either at a similar place of power, not necessarily like I am power level five and you're power five, but just like power in general or whatever the context of the story is that requires it or higher. Right. They need to either present a challenge to the hero by being as strong or stronger. And but it also helps that um, because the villain is strong, then that explains why this particular hero needs to be the one to stop them. Right. Um, in a lot of ways, the villain defines the hero oftentimes in many contexts or the, the group of if we're talking about superheroes, maybe the group of villains, because without, you know, as the whole the very cliched at this point, Batman Joker thing, like without one, I mean, villains would exist, I, I suppose. Uh, but they are the need, like the, the existence of the villain is what makes for the heroes. Yeah. Um, usually they have a, a kind of entwined past or a shared destiny, um, because that makes the story a little bit more interesting than just, um, you know, you're the, you're the, you're the bad guy and I'm, the particular cop that is chasing you um, to give them a connection. But there's also something, and this is kind of the conceit of the film Unbreakable, which, you know, dissects the hero-villain relationship in an interesting way, but that, especially in comic books um, and 
comic book derived things, the villain is often a kind of a dark mirror of the hero. Mm -hmm. So if the hero is very physically strong, the villain will be physically weak, but very, very intelligent or in the way that the Batman Joker relationship has developed. Batman is very careful and logical and um, meticulous. The Joker is wild and chaotic and improvisational. Um, And that's kind of, kind of natural. Um, The, uh, you know, or Spider-Man is young and cocky and freewheeling. Um, Dr. Octopus is old and fat and serious. Um, but they have these shared, very similar origin stories of men of science where science gives them their powers and they go in different directions. Um, so there is that relationship to the hero, but I think what really makes them a villain as opposed to just an antagonist, there is something about their moral code and that it is the reverse of our heroes. Correct. I will also say, well, first, just, you know, snarky comment. If you're, if you're Marvel, some of Marvel's output lately, you just, they're actually just a direct mirror and you just put the bad guy in the exact same suit with different colors and that's how you make them fight. Um, <laughs> uh, so I also think that, I think you're right about that. There's something to, like, the morality is in, the morality is in contrast. And also, there's something, about almost like we when we way back when when our first episode when we defined superheroes about mm-hmm. being exceptional in the context. Mm-hmm. I feel like villains also kind of by nature have to be some at least to, at least in some way some manner exceptional in the context. Yes, it's the and, and it's usually their intelligence, at least in um, or their their malice or their. Ruthlessness. destructiveness ruthlessness hate whatever it is like yeah. one of those feelings is an ex- as it turned to 11 and they and they and they almost always have to be extra smart because otherwise i mean you can't really have a villain in a story who's dumber than the hero right because then, then there would be a very short story probably um, i mean juggernaut's pretty dumb but you know he's pretty powerful so but, but Juggernaut, yeah. Juggernaut is usually a hench, right? That's true. He is usually a secondary character in most yeah. contexts. You're right. Um, you need you need a mastermind who is um, you know bossing him around. So 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 I think it's it's the moral code, but their moral code isn't just opposed to the hero's moral code. It is opposed to the viewer's moral code as well. The reader's moral code. Because otherwise they start to go into that gray area of, you know, Thanos did nothing wrong. That kind of gray area of like villain or just antagonist or just especially callous character. Um, they We as the viewer need to look at the actions of the villain and see them as really morally reprehensible in order to really feel like they're the villain as opposed to just eh, kind of a mean dude. Right. The thing that elevates them from being a hench or a thug or a common criminal. So I think that's a good working definition of villain. Um, so and this this idea of villainy and the really the genre fiction villain, the super villain, the mustache twirling Skeletor style villain, um, evil for evil's sake, that really cartoonish villain has always been fascinating to me. Um because it seems like such a 
weird thing. Like, we don't know any of these people. They don't seem to exist in reality, yet they're often a crucial part of a lot of our fiction. So over the summer, Andrew and I and and Roger, who um, y'all will remember back from our um, Dungeons and Dragons episode, um, embarked on a little project with the idea of kind of reverse engineering a supervillain, a cartoonish supervillain, using D&D as kind of our simulation environment. Um, so if you look at your kind of cartoonish supervillain as the end state, right? Um, if it's Skeletor or it's um, the monarch from Venture Brothers or um, Megatron, um, you know, the really cartoonish villain, that's the end state. Um, can we get there? Can you, can you looking at relatively realistic character motivations, decision-making, um, you know, those sorts of things, can you get there, um, you know, evolve out of a more or less realistic emotional and intellectual circumstance into that character? So we worked with Roger to kind of, um, set up a D and D campaign where Andrew and I would play villains um, start out as, you know, baby level one villains and see if we could work our way towards being, um, cartoonish supervillains. Um, so Andrew and I built out two characters with this kind of end state in mind. One that was going to be the, um, the evil mastermind who wants to, whose, whose goal is to conquer the world. And the other who is the, you know, brooding, menacing henchman. And could we start these characters in, I mean, obviously it's not super realistic, it's D&D, and we kind of know where we have to get to, um, but could we get there? Could we answer the questions of, like, who goes to work for that, you know, cackling, world-conquering megalomaniac and stays working for that person after they go on murder sprees and burn down villages and all of that? Um, And how does, you know somebody who thinks they're capable of conquering the world actually get there kind of starting from scratch. So our, our two characters, um, we kind of stayed in a pretty generic place because we wanted to end up in a generic place. But my character was Baron Valak Orlock, who was a evil wizard who had murdered his family to gain their inheritance. Um, and I started him in a place of just extreme narcissism, thinking that, um, he was the smartest and the prettiest and, um, the world owed him a lot. Um, and he was going to go out and take it and he didn't much care for the rules. Uh, so Andrew, tell us about your character. My character was Xanth Kolar, uh, a fantasy ass name if there ever was one. <laughs> um, in my mind, he was sort of the, well, I was trying very hard because I have a, I tend to fall on a pattern of making characters that are sort of like stoic and like straightforward, which partially because they're easy to play because <laughs> I'm not the, <laughs> always the best at being like super, you know, thinking on my feet and lots of witty comments and whatever. Uh, but I, I built him to be, you know, kind of this big brooding older character who, you know, served, uh, you know, the family. Uh, Valak's family for a very long time and sort of attached myself to him as seeing that like this was the way to sort of 
show my worth, show uh, the people around me um, that I'm not just that I'm not just a goon. There's irony there for sure. Um, <laughs> but that and that, you know, and, and a little bit of a I truly think that what this guy is doing, not that it's right, because I think he knows that like the stuff they're doing isn't wasn't good, but that it's what I'm signing up for. Also, he killed me and brought me back to life. So <laughs> I was kind of indebted in that way as well a little bit, but I didn't want that to be, I wanted to be there under my own free will because being, well, ha- well mechanically having a D&D party where people don't want to be together is a recipe for disaster. Yes. Uh, first note for any of you novice DMs or Dungeon Dagger players is like, make sure your party has reasons to stay together. Other- otherwise, it's going to be real dumb real quick. Yeah. Uh, so I wanted to, you know, I was truly committed to his person's leadership I was a little bit easily influenced in this way, and I was the uh, the henchman. Yeah, um, and we tried to work out, like, what is that debt like? That feeling of loyalty plus the feeling of indebtedness towards having your life back, but also you were a decaying zombie man. Um, but also, the we kind of built into the backstory that the magic that I used to bring you back from the dead, we weren't entirely sure how it worked. So we were hesitant to monkey with it. Um, so, so that was the starting place. And Roger built a campaign for us. And we got about six, seven, eight hours in. And things kind of fell apart. And... There were some gameplay reasons that they fell apart that Roger would be much better at explaining because he has a much better sense for these things. But I think that one of the I think that we we tested the boundaries of how do you get from level one uh, and and in D&D level one, you're relatively underpowered. Um, Not a lot you can do in the world, um, especially in terms of, you know, if you're a magic character, you can't, you know. You can't perform great feats of, of of magic. You can basically shoot some fireballs or maybe um, throw your voice. Um, so, but how do you get there? And so, I think we learned a couple things from doing this. Um, um, and some of these are the reasons that it kind of fell apart. But it falling apart kind of illustrated these. So, the first thing is, and we talked a little bit about this at the beginning, but is the relationship of villainy to power um, and I think in order to, what we learned from this D&D experiment is, in order to really be a villain and really go whole hog on doing villain shit, you need to be more powerful than the world around you. Because, so we kind of wanted to start the character out as a jerk and evolve him into Skeletor, but to get there, a jerk who doesn't have great powers and can't really do much more than the average guy in the D&D world... um, you kind of have to play by the world's rules to start with. Yeah, I mean, the being playing an evil campaign is always something like I guarantee you that within if you guess you start a D D group within the first month, someone is in the group is going to go, "Oh man, we should play an evil campaign," and like unless there's there's a little bit of some gross stuff that can happen there with like people fulfilling weird gross fantasies in that area, which I'm not going to get into here. But ignoring that, it can be really fun, but it's really hard to do. Um, for, you know, the reasons Greg is saying, but there's some other, like, just mechanical reasons that, like, the game is sort of designed with the expectation that you're good or at least fairly neutral, um, or maybe just, like, a little greedy, which is fine, so it's hard to play, it's hard to play 
as a sustainable character, like an evil character, which isn't isn't different than regular fiction, because villains usually outside of superhero villains who, you know, where jails are revolving doors and whatnot, like mm-hmm. most villains are a problem that is eventually solved, right? Like yes. it is a task that gets checked off the hero's list and he moves on to the next one or the world is saved and we live in a utopia or something like that. Uh, so I think that, and the same thing kind of goes for D and D like you, if you're going to play an evil character, you almost have to play someone, you have to play someone that either has to have a really intense backstory of, you know, betrayal and revenge and, you know, unjustness and like, you know, that you almost like a, almost turning into sort of a, a Walter Wright situation mm-hmm. where, you know, you started as a decent guy and then went down a path of villainy sort of by accident. Um, or, yeah. or you play or what happens is you are a character who, you know, at some point, if you're looking for wealth or power, at some point you will hit that being like, OK, I'm done. I own a kingdom. I guess I'm good. Like, what, <laughs> you know, like what? what is the end game of a villain Unless, unless this is a good thing, unless their goal is to eliminate goodness or something like that, right. because that's sort of the hero's goal is to eliminate evil and there will always be evil in the world or something like that. But so, but that's, that's the thing. So let's say that, you know, um, but I'll, well, so I think part of this is the nature of D and D and the way the game is built and that it is, you know, it's very combat focused and, um, it's hard to, I mean, it's not impossible, but it's harder in D&D to do things like um, build a drug empire. <laughs> D&D is much more built around the idea of let's go explore this dark mansion and find the magical crystal that's in it. That's more what the game is built for. The systems support that much more easily than I'm going to launder money for 10 years until I have enough to take the first step in this process. It's um, so, but it's this idea of it's tough to be a proper villain in the capital V supervillain sense when you live in a world that has things like cops or heroes or just people who don't want to be murdered. Like, you know, we started out in a town and you go to the inn just like you do and you talk to the innkeeper. Um, But we could have started a fight with that innkeeper, but we probably would have been murdered eventually. (laughs) We could have like there were other characters in the town. We eventually would have been mobbed and hunted down and it would have been a very short game. So you kind of just have to start out just being a dick. But even that... Um, has some problems that I'll get to momentarily. But there's also in the in the world that Roger built, there were other evil forces at work um, who were f- much further along the path with us. So we couldn't even start shit with them because, and this makes sense. This is a realistic world. Like we didn't wake up and we're the first person to think like, hey, what if we broke the rules? Like <laughs> other people had that idea before us, um, and uh, and that makes sense, but. That kind of forces you to lay low, and you can't really be a supervillain to start. Um, but a lot of those interactions um, brought to mind the second big point, which is that being good, or at least acting good, playing by the rules, has a better risk-reward ratio than being an evil monster. Um, so, yeah. for example, that, that innkeeper interaction. So... I'm having a conversation with this innkeeper, trying to get information about the quest, figure out what we're doing next. Pretty standard RPG stuff. Um, 
there's a lot of ways I could go in that conversation. D and D allows for different paths, um, different, you know, methods of conversation. So I could try to threaten him or I could like try to murder him. Um, but either one of those routes, if I try to threaten him, that could go wrong and I could, you know, basically, and the guy could tell me to get the hell out of his bar and now I get nothing from him. Um, or I could try to start a fight with him, but then I could lose the fight. And that's not good at this stage as an innkeeper. Do I want to lose, you know, five HP trying to understand where the back door to the mansion is? No. Um, so in terms of progressing my character through the game, trying to meet my character's goals, I don't really have much to gain by threatening or murdering this dude. I have more to gain by being a nice guy. And because I built my character as a wizard and as very, very intelligent, I had to role play it this way where my character would have to know that the more profitable thing for him to do is be nice, is pretend not to be a villain. So at that point, if you're going through the game pretending not to be a villain, you're not really being a villain. Um, and, and it's it's interesting because it's it's reflective of it's reflective of real life in some ways. And and when you think about it, because overall, when you're talking about for your average person, not for the one percent necessarily, um, being good will you have a better risk reward ratio. You know, me not speeding and not shoplifting probably in the long run will be is is a better risk reward ratio because the reward i'm getting for those things is not all that much but the risk is a lot higher than it should be now there's probably fringe cases in the real world where this isn't the case especially if you have no moral center whatsoever but but generally speaking society is set up where the risk reward ratio generally falls on the side of playing by the rules playing by society's rules is generally a better risk reward calculation um for most people. Now, obviously, uh, to be very, to get all SJW about it, um, the lower you fall on the socioeconomic ladder, uh, the less true that might be. Playing by the rules being the good risk reward. And also that assumes a system where the rules apply equally to everyone, regardless of uh, the color of your skin or the contents of your underpants, which in America is not always true. So in some cases, playing by the rules is not the right risk reward calculation because um, there's, the reward is not as guaranteed for you and the risk might be exceptionally elevated for you. But within the context- or, or also appear like, you know, appear worse. Right. Like, I mean, in this context, you're absolutely right. It is a true thing. But there's also a situation where the it might feel like because of what the real injustice is that a person is facing, that breaking the rules is a better way to get to the top because they look at the people at the top and say, well, they're breaking the rules. True. So, uh, you know, it's very safe to play by the rules in the middle of society. Yes. I think at the two extremes is where it gets. Well, and the risk difficult. reward uh, ratio becomes different when you are when um, the rules you are worried about are not rules around uh, theft or assault. They are rules around financial transactions or corporate governance, where the penalty is often something that is much more manageable. It's a fine. It's or, something that can, be, that can be explained by an Excel right, spreadsheet. <laughs> or even a... Um, uh, um, 
you have the ability to, because you have access to more legal levers, um, you know, the, the fine can be reduced or negotiated down or, um, or, you know, you roll the dice of, they won't even come after me. So it's different, but, um, generally for the vast majority, the risk reward ratio comes down on play by the rules, be good. And that's true in a simula- simulation of reality like D and D, um, where generally speaking, you know, being, you know, doing evil shit reduces my options, reduces my chances for success. Yeah, I had a thought about this because I was thinking, you know, you know, thinking about this concept of the risk reward ratio and sort of thinking like, oh, maybe it's just because we're playing a game and the game has to, you know, have things in it that prevent you from doing stuff that breaks the game. Maybe if this was done in a narrative format, like, you know, we were writing a book from about Valak and Xanth. And I was like, oh, you just, you know, you just turn the story to be what you want it to be. People are really intimidated. But I, I think that that is a disservice because then you're just twisting a plot line to be what you want it to be to show something where in D&D, that is a realistic interaction. Like if I go into a bar today and I and I try to intimidate, a.k.a. roll an intimidate check on a bartender to try and get them to do something, give me information about something, although I don't think most bartenders in the modern age know as much as innkeepers in, you know, <laughs> olden D&D days. But for the sake of argument, I walk in, I am truly rolling intimidate check. And I mean, me as me probably would fail miserably because I have no ranks in that. But it is a roll of the dice because, you know, Valak might be, in, you know, with your devil horns and whatever else you had going on, might be intimidating enough to some people for that to work. Or it might not. And they're going to punch you in the face. <laughs> And that's that sort of like realism that you don't hear the I think we're getting at here is that you're not you don't hear the origin stories of villains very often, or at least not the full origin stories. Right. There's a there there there's usually a large part that's left off, which is you get the origin story of what turned them into a bad person. And then yada, 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 they're the head of a multinational corporation and can do whatever the fuck they want. But there's a lot of that yada, yada, yada. But or. Then, or they were always a bad person and then yada, yada, yada. And then one day they get a bunch of superpowers or something. Right. Those are the two extremes. But, but even in the, in the real world, right? Like, um, cause there are dudes out there who do try to run and roll an intimidate check on anybody they want something from. Like that's a style of person. Um, but that's not a very successful way to go about doing things because if you approach everything with that, I'm going to threaten and intimidate people to get what I want. Eventually, you're going to threaten the wrong person and you're going to get stabbed. <laughs> right? Like I mean, that's... I would assume, although I guess both of us are people who probably have never rolled an intimidate check on anybody in our lives. So maybe we're just missing out on the fun. Like, I don't know. <laughs> it's, but but that's, yeah, so at some point that's going to happen. Yeah. And yeah. an intelligent person, and again, following the model of, you know, the supervillain is super smart. Valak Orlock, my character, would have known it was a dumb idea to, um, to try to threaten and intimidate and murder his way to success because there's a lot more ways that can go wrong than just smiling and trying to be nice. There's not a lot of ways that smiling and trying to be nice can go wrong for you. Um, so, so if we follow that line of logic and say that evil and intelligence 
don't really meet mix because an intelligent person, even if they're evil in at, in their heart, knows that it's probably better just to pretend to be good. Um, but dumb and evil, dumb and evil doesn't live very long. <laughs> so maybe I've got a impulsive character, lower intelligence, um, but just as evil. So this is somebody who doesn't do very good risk reward calculations. This character would get stopped very early in their villain career because they get outsmarted by the cops or by a a bigger bad who knows how to manipulate them because right. they're going to make mistakes or they're going to get outsmarted. So smart and evil, the smart evil people know to pretend not to be evil. The dumb evil people are all in jail. Um, so... If those things are true, that leads me to my fourth point, which is I think the only way you get to supervillain is you have to have a heel turn at some point. And that is the, you know, uh, I guess it came from wrestling, but this is where a character who you think is a good guy uh, reveals himself to really be a bad guy. Um, there's a great one at the end of the first season of The Good Place, um, <laughs> but it's a moment. Um, and sometimes the audience is a little bit more in on it than the rest of the characters, but still it's a moment where the mask comes off and, um, they, they go all in on evil in the star Wars prequels. It's really, um, uh, when Anakin like kills the kids at the Academy, that's really his heel turn when he goes from conflicted good guy to full on bad guy. Right. There's a lot of really good examples of this. I mean, it's, it's super common. I mean, you think of people like uh you know in doctor strange with um uh what's his uh friend's name blanking on the guy's name wong no 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 the other one baron mordo yes mordo like he has a heel turn in the end of that movie and now he is going to be a villain after amassing power as a hero yeah um so 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 the real path to super villainy is you have to amass your power through a conventional way, because if you are a bad guy who's amassing power, somebody at some point is going to say either the good guys are going to say, don't do that. Or the bad guys are going to say who are already, you know, exist are going to say you're too much competition. Get out of here. So you need to amass power as a good guy and then, you know, playing by the rules and the broad strokes. And then at some point, um, once you've achieved a certain level of power and influence and almost immunity, um, then you go evil. You break bad, as it were. Um, so I think that's what I've, through this simulation, I think that's what, at least was the conclusion that I came to of like how you can have a even remotely realistic path from, um, you know, budding psychopath to true evil is that you really have to pretend to be good until you're powerful enough that you can be evil. Because if you start out weak and evil, man, the world is going to stomp you down. Yes, I I really do agree with this. And also this this discussion just makes me realize, oh, my God, Breaking Bad is such a good show because it's just like it's showing you a slow heel turn. <laughs> yes. Uh, so but I hear you there. Um, yeah. And I think that when you. And there can be different types of heel turns, right? There's there's someone who is, you know, sort of playing at being good or following the rules or people who truly were good and following by the rules and something happens and it changes mm -hmm. them. I think that I think, ooh, here we go. I think the nature of the heel turn 
defines what kind of villain they are combined with maybe the context of who they were before the hill turn what do you think right. about that so so you've got your your anakin skywalker example of he was good he got super disillusioned went bad and then eventually came back came back to his senses um and then you've got on the other hand you've got maybe more of a james bond villain type who they're a titan of industry and all of a sudden they're trying to hold paris for ransom right <laughs> they reveal that I've surprised I've been I've been bad this whole time. Right. What we what Elon Musk might do. Yeah. We're still waiting might? on a heel turn. Oh man, it's gonna be big. <laughs> I mean, uh, honestly, we're kind of living through one right now. That's true. That you're not you're not wrong. I mean, we are living through a person who amassed significant cultural and economic power um and seemed relatively harmless. And then got to got to a level of power where he became uh, kind of untouchable. And now is just surprise. I've been a monster this whole time. Um, Greg, who are you talking about? I'm not I'm not really uh, picking up what you're putting down. Uh, uh, Jerry Seinfeld. <laughs> um, no, obviously not Jerry Seinfeld. No. Um, yeah, I, I think this is. No, this makes a lot of sense, and I think that it. I think that it's accurate. To your point, it's accurate in the world, and I think it's, it can be even accurate on a small scale, right? Like, it, it, it does assume one thing, mm-hmm. uh, which is that. Well, it doesn't assume one thing for the sake of your discussion. It's this doesn't matter. It's the same, but um, because we're going through the simulation of what it means, you know, it sort of has. It sort of assumes that. Well, I guess it doesn't. I was gonna say it assumes that people are inherently good. But it doesn't really it just means that, you know, the the nature of the simulation has shown us that even if you're evil from the get go, unless you're smart enough to realize you need to play by the rules for a certain amount of time, then you will get squished. Well, I think that I don't know that it, it says that people are inherently good, but I think that it says that people in general will, will play by society's rules. People will go through the motions of goodness because society by definition, rewards certain kinds of behavior and punishes others. So society compels you to be good. So whether or not you are good in your heart is almost moot to the conversation because the benefits generally fall on the side of being good and the punishments fall on the side of being bad in general, uh, you know, in the broad strokes. So does it assume that people are inherently good? No, but... You know, assuming most people are self-interested and generally, um, you know, are, 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 are reasonably good at making risk-reward calculations, people will be good in the broad strokes. They certainly won't do supervillain shit. Now, the counter-argument to this might be, what's the closest thing we have to proper comic book villains in our world? And that is people like serial killers. Right. And I'm no expert on this, but I have uh, listened to a stupid amount of true crime <laughs> podcasts. Um, oh, you're basically can, an expert then. Yeah, well, and I can say that um, for a lot of serial killers, the defining characteristic um, of them is obviously their brains are broken. And for a lot of them, their brains get more broken as they go. So they get more and more careless and then eventually get caught. 
Um, but also it is just that, and as you dig into, you know, the ones where we really know their story and you see all the times that the police came just so, so close to catching them, um, is they have a lucky story is that this is a person who just, cause there's a lot of murderers out there who get caught after their first one. Yeah. And they don't get to become serial killers. They get caught after their second one or, um, you know, they get hit by a bus, <laughs> you know, before, after their first murder. Um, so they just happen to have a run of good luck where they're able to do these horrible things over and over again, just because they, in D&D terms, rolled a lot of natural 20s on just, man, <laughs> pass that deception check with that cop. That was weird. Like when you hear about the times where, um, you know, Jeffrey Dahmer like lost track of a victim and that victim went to the cops and the cops just like never checked on it. You're like, what? And, you know, so that's a part of it. But if you're writing your supervillain story, just having them being lucky enough to get away with it 10 or 15 times in a row isn't very interesting. Yeah. Feels <laughs> a little contrived. You know, right. Um, and it certainly wouldn't work in a D&D world where, you know, Right. Um, unless the D unless the DM was really fudging the numbers for you, like, man, really? Huh? I guess, you know, I guess the, the city watch just didn't hear that scream. <laughs> Lucky you. <laughs> um, I, so this is interesting. I think this, this is good. I think this is one thing it has illustrated to me is that, or crystallized something for me that when we, when people talk about what defines a good villain, people always say, oh, they should be the, you know, the hero of their own story. And I've always kind of like, I agree that's the base some good villains, but I think there can be villains that aren't that. And I think that it, what I think it is, is how compelling of a heel turn is it? That's what makes a good villain. Because you can have someone who knows they're doing bad stuff and doesn't care. They're so full of rage or revenge or whatever that, you know, there's a certain type of person that just gives up, right? And that can be compelling in a certain way. Or, you know, if... You know, you just, you see, and it's like these heel turns can be slow, right? Like watching Breaking Bad, you kind of, every step of the way, there's a, you know, you're like, oh, this kind of makes sense, right? Like, oh, you know, that's kind of a little harsh, but like, yeah, it's easy when he has to do. And all of a sudden you're like, oh my God, what am I agreeing with? Like, um, these things can be subtle or they can be dramatic, but I think the quality in a fictional sense of like the heel turn really determines, can determine how compelling we find a villain what do you think yeah um i think darth vader's heel turn was much better before we saw it <laughs> sure and that's it's it's a good example of why you don't see a lot of heel turns i mean you, you, you see some but for the really really evil villains usually you see heel turns for people that are a little more which i guess you know anakin is supposed to be um you know have this arc of redemption and tragedy and these sort of things but uh, to our earlier point for more straight up evil people, there's a reason you don't see it because it, it probably wouldn't be very like what's Skeletor's heel turn <laughs> when if he gets I, turned into a skeleton man and goes, yeah. oh, I hate everybody. <laughs> yeah, basically <laughs> it's turned into a skeleton face and is upset about it. <laughs> no, he was always I mean, honestly, if I'm remembering Skeletor's backstory correctly, like he was always an evil wizard. Like there, right. we shouldn't, we shouldn't be using Skeletor as a model for like <laughs> good, compelling villain. No, no, not at all. Uh, uh, or like, all right, Greg, you're the, uh, you're the Tolkien master here. Mm. Uh, what's Sauron's heel turn? Ooh, oh, you're asking me some Silmarillion shit. So I'm going to get <laughs> myself in trouble with the one person who's read it. Um, 
if I remember correctly, Sauron is a servant of Melkor. Melkor being one of the original, the first generation um, children of uh, God, essentially. And Melkor basically is Lucifer. This was um, all of the, and I'm forgetting the names of the angel equivalent in um, in Tolkien's cosmology, but um, they were all singing and making music and singing the universe into being, and Melkor, for some reason, didn't like singing along with the rest. Um, and, uh, and thus he kind of became the odd man out and just hated everybody else. It was just kind of in his nature, just like the Lucifer story of he was the one angel who, um, who resented, um, how much God loved man because he thought that the angels were the, were the best first and best creation. Uh, so did his whole rebellion thing. So a very similar story. Sauron was one of his servants, um, so I think it, it, it is a, if Sauron ever started out as good, he was corrupted by Melkor in that kind of fantasy Satan way of like, I tricked you into being bad or, you know, I use my black magic to steal your soul or something like that. There wasn't a really like, and this is kind of characteristic of Tolkien who kind of painted things in a really mytho- mythological way um, where evil comes from without. Um Right. I and, sort of... Go ahead, sir. And if you look at, like, the story of Smeagol into Gollum, you know, Gollum has a heel turn, obviously, when he turns from Smeagol into Gollum, but it's because of the ring. The magic, evil power of the ring corrupts him. Hmm. Yeah. I was sort of trying to take a very quick, these are no point exhaustive, but stab at some categories, and I defined, I, I also said, you know, some versions of Satan or Lucifer, depending on what, you know, what you're reading. Not actually read the Bible itself, but all the other like related things like Paradise Lost and these kind of things. Um, people like Sauron and the Dark One from Wheel of Time, these very like moral, external moralistic forces almost, right. where it's the, less even an individual person, but more just like the embodiment of yes, evil. Yes, they're, they're a personification of, of, of evil, um, of the concept. And typically they're, they're acting through agents. Yeah. But there is a, there is a, there was, or there is a person, you know, there was a person behind it or, or a figure behind it, uh, a mind directing it. So evil has, the embodiment of evil has agency and has, makes decisions and things. But, um, you know, but that, and that's a good reason of why some people don't like those kind of characters because or those type of villains or antagonists in stories because they're, you know, simplistic and they don't have a good heel turn. They don't even have a heel turn. They've always been evil because right. they are evil. But there's something comforting about the idea that um, evil is a thing that can be defeated eventually. That there And that there is a countervailing force to evil. Um, there is a yin to its yang and they are in constant struggle, but there's just as much good as there is evil. And... Um, Victory is possible as opposed to the more maybe humanist point of view that evil is something that is within all of us and something we are all capable of and thus can never be truly defeated. Right. So along those lines, I've been my this is kind of your journey through uh, villainy and evil. Right. Um, Which I, you know, I think was 
very interesting and has really I'm now I'm going to be looking for the heel turn in every single thing that I ever read or watch or, you know, anything ever again. So thanks for that. Um, <laughs> or asking like, what was there? What was this guy's heel turn? Uh, so I went a, almost less. I mean, I, I always filter things through genre fiction because it's just where my brain lives. But I also was sort of thinking um, a lot about how the connection between genre fiction and the real world, we discussed a little bit, but also uh, almost from like a psychological perspective, which once again, I know very little about. So we should probably just get a psychologist on here and talk about it sometime. But sort of how our evolving understanding of, you know, you mentioned serial killers of just like, oh, they're like the most evil people in the world, right? Maybe seven years ago, that's what we would have thought, right? There's no one like what's what's someone who's the most evil person around? Oh, a serial killer. Where now it's like, oh, no, they're just one of the most sick people in the world. And then that started making me wonder, not so much in that middle gray area. And I, you know, I definitely always want to illustrate something I learned about in my first law history of law class, first and only because oof, oof, uh, <laughs> not the most fun topic. In the world for me. I can imagine. Yeah. Um, two of the two of the most boring things talking about each other. <laughs> It was very useful, but uh, but there's the idea of, and these are Latin terms, jus and lex, which is where we get, you know, jus, J-U-S for justice, you know, the root there, and lex, which is, you know, root for lexicon for, for like law. So basically mm-hmm. we're talking about, it's, it's a little bit of an oversimplification, and my professor probably smacked my wrist to say it's morality versus law, because it's not quite morality, but it's close enough for this. So... Keeping in mind that, you know, breaking the law doesn't make you a bad person and beneath does following it make you a good person. And, you know, the the context of it and the use of uh, people's society and their environments is what oftentimes really dictates our views of one another and how we sort of internalize evil and disruption in society. So I have been thinking a lot about this because I wonder, like you said, you know, the humanistic approach, we all have evil inside of us and that we're all capable of it. But I feel like there's like a line where there's things that maybe your average person couldn't imagine doing. And I wonder that the people who cross that line, are we just still in an early understanding of similar to how our minds have our understanding of serial course has evolved so that is it is it fair to categorize evil? evil as something wrong with our brains so the way that um and the way that the law kind of looks at this is what the insanity defense really is because you can make the argument that anybody who thinks it's okay to kill 12 people is clearly insane um but the insanity defense really means that you didn't know what you were doing you were murdering someone but you thought you were mowing the lawn um, and that's pretty rare. Most people, again, if we use our serial killer example, they know what they are doing. They know that it is against the law, um, but they're doing it anyway. Um, and in many cases it is because they either enjoy inflicting harm or they care so little about the people that they are inflicting harm upon that they don't care that the other people have to suffer for the killer to get their jollies. And yeah, there is something fundamentally broken in their brain. Um, and many times it is tied to childhood head trauma, weirdly enough. Um, but to put that in the same 
um, bucket as just mental illness, I don't know. I mean, I think that I think there's a definition of evil that is out there that makes sense. And, you know, it is it is in my mind, somehow rooted in your willingness to do harm to others for your own personal gain. Um, so you, do you think greed is equivalent to evil? I mean, I think it's it's what you do in service of that greed that is evil. I mean, we all can be greedy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I think, you know, where, where, what, is it evil? Okay, so you go to the ATM it spits out a hundred more dollars than you asked for. And it doesn't show up in your account balance. It just, the machine screwed up and gave you too much money. You just, if you decide to keep it, is that an evil act? You know, you kept $400 that technically wasn't yours because the bank made a mistake. Is that evil? I mean, that's a, that's a manifestation of greed, but is it evil? But if you steal that $400 from a stranger, that's evil. If you steal it from a loved one, that's probably even more evil. If you steal it from a loved one who needed it to buy life-saving medicine, that's probably even more evil. If you steal it from a loved one who needed the medicine so that you can buy child porn, that's super evil. <laughs> so I think it's, 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 again, how does the greed manifest itself? And what is the action it leads you to? And how do other people suffer as a result? Those, to me, fold into the equation of evil. Right. I guess what I'm getting at is that, and I'm trying to phrase this cautiously, not because I'm couching what I how I feel, but just because I, it's truly a complicated subject and because I don't want to misspeak. We've seen a large number of quote-unquote social ills, as they would have been called maybe in like the 20s, or like the 19th century, or even, God, 10 years ago (laughs) for some situations, Mm -hmm. you know, move out from being a thing that someone does on purpose because they're lazy, because they're name a million things, name a million reasons. One of them being they're bad people or they're evil or something like that. And we've seen them examined and studied and then put into a new category of, well, something is broken in your brain, and it's not inherently your fault, and we're going to try and, you know, not make excuses or, or uh, absolve you of blame for things, because that's not how it typically works, but more, you know, have an explanation for what's going on, and there is a little bit of that removing it from, you know, this idea of, I don't want to get down this road, but like the idea of like the decisions we make and, and you know, our, free, our, own, our own free will or whatever. So I just wonder, postulating, like, is there a point, it, do is there a certain line through, you know, let's say you lined up a hundred of those spectrums that you just outlined of stealing and you did it for, you know, a, assault and you did it for, you know, all kinds of bad things. And then is there some curvy line in there where in five or 10 years, just as we sort of have isolated psychopathy and sociopathy, will other things more maybe more mild versions of those or something we'll be able to find and say like oh this person beats their wife because they are insert new word that we haven't used before i'm just curious and then i'm trying to understand you know trying to sort of then re-extrapolate that back into genre fiction to sort of are there i wonder is there i'm sure there must be like psychological studies of like supervillains. so i would say the you know i i think that psychopath is really just that's just a clinical term for evil, really. Like it is a person who um, is 
pathologically incapable of empathizing with other people. Um, and to me, that just sounds like, okay, that's the clinical diagnosis of evil. Um, can it be controlled? Yes. But that's to me, that's the difference is we could use these diagnoses in a medieval way of the devil made me do it. Um, my condition, you know, the, the person who beats, beats their wife, my, you know, um, my, you know, decreased executive function as a result of ADHD made me do it. That's a different thing than saying, well, I have these shortcomings, these struggles as a result of my mental condition that I have to fight against. Just like, the idea of evil is something that is within all of us that we all struggle have. It is our it is our mission as humans to struggle against that. And certain people need more help and different kinds of help than others. So if that continues to be the model of it is something you need to fight as opposed to something you can blame your problems on, then I'm good. But if we go down the road of the devil made me do it, you know, psychopath psychopathology made me do it. Oh, okay, fine. Let's give you an exorcism and be done with it. To me, that's a step backwards. But um, yeah, it's really about if our if our operating model is still it's something inside you that you are at the end of the day responsible for controlling and for coping with and for you know building your life around so that it does not impact other people. Then good. That makes sense. Uh, that makes a lot of sense. And I think that, you know, when we're thinking about what defines a good villain, you know, I think that actually lines up pretty well with someone like, let's pick one off the list. Like, let's say like, this one's got a pretty easy one. This one's always like Magneto, right? Like this is a guy who had a heel turn for sure. <laughs> um, and it was a fairly early heel turn, I think, uh, depending on what version we're going off. But I think that it's a good example of that. Like I have these inclinations to hurt people when I feel certain things or when I think certain things, but sometimes I, and sometimes I'm better at controlling that. And sometimes I'm not so good at controlling that. And that's an interesting perspective, you know, psychologically on like how you view sometimes he's a good guy and sometimes he's a bad guy. I think those kind of, and that actually fits very well for a lot of comic book villains who sometimes you got to team up with or the gray characters, the antiheroes, those kind of people. So Magneto is an interesting example because, and obviously this is a character who's got a 60 year history. So, but is Magneto more callous than evil? Because, and again, it depends on the version of Magneto. You're, is it the, I just want mutants to have a safe place to live Magneto. Um, but I will, but I'm willing to kill a lot of people to make that happen. That's callous. Um, but he's not necessarily taking joy in the killing. He's not doing, he, he's not doing the killings for the killing sakes and then saying, oh yeah, well, I guess it makes a better place for mutants to live. So meh, whatever. Um, the killing is a means to an end for him, which is to me, that's a form of callousness or cruelty. Uh, maybe just callousness. Um, yeah, I, I'm struggling with, I guess I am struggling with that line between callousness and true malice i mean there, there's definitely yeah. a difference but i i really feel like when you're talking about you know it, it i oftentimes look at the DD spectrum to go back a little bit like lawful evil neutral evil chaotic evil a lot of people who are like lawful evil would be you might be able to put in your category like i would say magneto is generally maybe not anymore but back in the day it was like 
lawful evil. Like, I have a goal, I have a code, my goal is this, I don't care how I get there. I would say that for me, what I would think of someone who's callous, I would think of more someone like a Stannis Baratheon, who I would slot more in a lawful neutral area where it's just like, ooh, you do some questionable things, but you really don't want to. And I kind of get the sense that like Magneto kind of wants to. I wouldn't say he relish, he's not the Joker, he's not Carnage, he's not relishing other people's pain, but he has his background, he has a lot of anger and rage and passion that can express itself in a yes. a way that can, I think, come across as sort of like malice. But if we look at, but if we look at Game of Thrones again, um, so yeah, Stannis is more that callous character. He is willing to do some rough stuff to achieve his goals, but he's kind of doing it reluctantly. He, if there was a better way, he'd probably do, do it versus a character like Joffrey, who clearly takes pleasure in hurting other people, um, who tortures people for the fun of it. Um, or Ramsey Bolton, you know, the same way, um, you know, he's in it for the lulls. Whereas, you know, Stannis is, um, it's that difference of a callous is a general who doesn't care how many civilians have to die, um, in order to achieve his mission. Um, or maybe he doesn't, it's not that he doesn't care, but you know, he's willing to sacrifice civilians versus somebody who's like, I'd be killing civilians, even if there wasn't a war on, um, that's the difference between callous and evil. Right. And I think, well, yeah, I don't know. I think Game of Thrones is a helpful lens, Song by Some Fire, because there's no real, I mean, this is one thing. I like that you brought up, you know, Ramsey Bolton and um, Joffrey, because I think that there's another topic here that just because there's an evil character in the story doesn't make them the villain of the story. Right. And I kind of feel like, well, I guess Ramsey Bolton's pretty, he's pretty central to plotline. Um... I don't know, though. I kind of feel like both of those characters exist to sort of be like, here's the versions of psychopaths in this world. And like they affect the plot, certainly. But because of the complexity of Game of Thrones, like I I don't even know if there is a human villain in that story. So this is this is this is the part where we have to differentiate between the books and the show. Sure. The show has taken a very Breaking Bad approach to their villains where um they progressed through a series of villains. Mm-hmm. Um, first, it was Joffrey. Then it was Tywin. Then it was Ramsay. Now it's Cersei. I may have skipped a step in there. But um, where they've kind of moved through like a big bad. Um, same way Game of Thrones or uh, Breaking Bad did it, where you had um, Tuco, and then you had Gus Fring, and then you had the skinheads eventually. It was almost like, you know, like a video game moving through progressively more difficult stages. Um, whereas the Song of Ice and Fire book series, there are villains within certain subplots, certain situations, um, but there isn't a big bad that hangs over the entire story as much. Yeah, it might be helpful to juxtapose villains as opposed to the individual heroes. Like, Joffrey is the villain to Sansa. Yes. And... You know, for a while, like, I don't know who the villain for Arya is, but like, you know, uh, Ramsey is the villain to Sansa. <laughs> so you noticing a trend here. Um, yeah. Uh, poor girl. Uh, you know, Cersei is the villain to 
everybody. I mean, like a lot of people like to Ned, to Tyrion, to, yeah, you know, Sansa. <laughs> um, but so that's a, that's a helpful way to sort of distinguish that. But yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm getting more confused the more we talk about this, actually. <laughs> well, I'm feeling I think that, confused. Well, I think the Game of Thrones is a really challenging one as we think about the books, because all of the characters, especially where you have POV characters, um, you know, where Cersei is the POV character and you understand what's going on in her head and um, her villainy is more understandable. The books expressly ask us to empathize with her, with a lot of the villain characters, truthfully. So, um, and we also see that a lot of our hero characters, you know, sometimes do some morally compromised things. So a big part of Game of Thrones is making us question the line between hero and villain. So it's a tough idea. And I know I'm using Game of Thrones, Song of Ice and Fire interchangeably. Song of Ice and Fire is about making us question the line between hero and villain. Um, the show is much more clear about who the good guys and the bad guys are. Um, mm-hmm. So I think so. Let's let's shift away from that because we're gonna we're gonna drive ourselves crazy trying to suss out the right. villains in Game of Thrones. Um, much easier in comic books. Yeah, comic books make it easier for sure. I, I think there is something interesting about the also the nature of villainy in sort of the three main subgenres we talk about most of the time, which is fantasy, science fiction, and like superheroes, comic book superheroes, um, because villains look pretty different in each one. Yeah. Uh, you know, fantasy villains tend to, I think, err towards the sides of like singular or maybe a, you know, is it, is it cable or cabal? I always get that cabal. one. Cabal of like bad people that sort of are the thrust of the story. Yeah. Demonic. Yeah. Almost. And then, Although I was, you'll enjoy this. I was making our, I was making a list of genre films just to have examples to look to and, and real quickly when we're in the middle of this conversation. Um, and I was like, who's, who's the villain in, uh, um, you know, name of the wind. I'm like, oh yeah, there isn't any, <laughs> I mean, there is a Shandrians and whatever else, but like we're two books in, we literally know nothing about any of them. So I came and put them on the list cause we've never even met them. So the villain is Patrick Rothfuss. <laughs> um, but anyway, side note aside, uh, and whereas, you know, I feel like in science fiction more often, there's not, well, you know, not more what you would definitely consider science fiction, not like Star Wars or things like that. But um, it's this, the villains are usually a little more abstract or societal, right? It's like a, an opposing race or an opposing empire or an opposing right. uh, alien species or something like that. Or an evil corporation. Right. And then it's it's usually less in single individual. And then um, whereas comic books, it's it's like a plethora of individuals. Yes. More a or less. A rose gallery. A rose gallery. Yeah. So I, I'm wondering if there's any reason for that. Can you, I mean, this is on the spot, but can you suss out any ideas about that? Well, fantasy, fantasy likes to concern itself with the mythic. And, and I, I definitely feel the, I just started reading, uh, the first Wheel of Time book, and I, I, I understand the comforting nature of that um, elemental good versus elemental evil. Like that is very comfort comforting to read about, especially in the news year we've been having. <laughs> um, and fantasy likes that, and that's part of the Tolkien lineage and all of that. Um, sci-fi, sci science fiction, generally being concerned with answering questions about reality or about society, having the villain be a person 
feels kind of self-defeating there as opposed to, you know, in Blade Runner, the villain is really the Terrell Corporation um, for building these replicants and putting them in these no-win scenarios and depriving them of um, a fully realized life. That's really the villain. Um, And you, you have Deckard and the replicants pitted against each other as a result of that. But that, but that framing forces us to ask the questions about um, life and about the role of corporations in our everyday life and the role of the police force to do the work of corporations. Like, those are good questions. But if the villain was just a bad robot, well, then it becomes Terminator and it's not really sci-fi anymore. It's something else. Um and in comic books, I mean, I think the rogues gallery is probably um, just part of the economic reality of <laughs> putting out a book every month or every two weeks. Um, you got to keep things interesting, got to keep things fresh. The hero has to say the same. And if it's the same villain every week, kids are going to get bored. So at some point, Batman has to lock up the Joker and go fight the Penguin. Right, right. That all makes sense. Um is there, I kind of feel like sometimes, I, and I can't describe it yet, so this is not going to be a very good comment, but I feel like in any of these genres, there's like, a lot of villains get very close to being what I want them to be, but always sort of, you know, fall a little short. Do you ever get that feeling? Yeah. Yeah. And I think part of it has to be that if they're really, if they really become, um, you know, real villains in that, to bring it back to where we started, was that idea of like their moral code is really existed odds to our own. We can't empathize with them, right? We, Mm -hmm. by making them truly capitally evil, we can't empathize with them. We can't relate to them. You know, they, we can only get so deep with them in our relationship with the character. But if we don't have them be, you know, completely morally opposite ourselves, then it becomes a gray area. Are they really a villain? kind of thing. So I feel like it's, you can't really be in the middle of them. Yeah. I mean, I feel like every villain that people like almost ends up having a second heel turn. Like, you know, look at like a Loki or whatever, where, you know, pretty evil guy in Thor and the Avengers. He's, you know, sympathetic, but still pretty evil. Mm -hmm. Clearly enjoys hurting people and causing mischief that hurts people. Uh And, but by Infinity War, you're pretty damn sad that he dies. (laughs) Yeah. And not just because you like to see the character, but like you're legitimately sad, you know, because there's a little bit more of a character arc there. So is it, you know, I wonder, one thing I'm excited for, actually, I'm looking forward to is, uh, and I wrote on the list because I was thinking about it, I really think that, uh, I'm trying to think of now, like, moving into some categories of, like, villains that I think, you know, are good examples or maybe contrasts to sort of our theory, like uh, the, the Netflix Daredevil version of the Kingpin, you know, who is back at the center of season three, which drops today mm-hmm. is, is October 19th, by the way. Um, so, Oh, don't tell him that. Who knows when I'm going to get this thing edited. Oh, sorry. <laughs> well, now Greg has to put it out today. Otherwise I'll look like an idiot. <laughs> December 20th. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, well, in Daredevil season eight by then, um, you know, I think that that interpretation of a character is, is a good way of taking a sort of 2d character from the, comic books and trying to show a little more of a, cause like, you know, that's one thing that that's one is one option where these hero, the villains can emerge is where, cause then a lot of TV is probably the only place you can do it or, or books, books, you can make it work. Um, you need to have time to almost tell a story of both 
a hero becoming a hero and a villain becoming a villain in one fell swoop, which is difficult in a movie yes. uh, or a short book or even a single book, probably a series of books you could do it. But um, once again, a Game of Thrones sort of shows that because you get Cersei Lannister's perspective. Uh, I think a little bit more of that would be helpful when you're getting most more perspectives from other characters. I mean, a lot of, you know, doing villain point of view stuff is tough sometimes. I'd like to see a little more of it. Uh, comics does it every once in a while. A lot of fantasy books will do it. Like in, in Wheel of Time, you will get like, I think there's uh, 10, 12 Forsaken. They're like the 12 Dark Disciples, essentially. And every once in a while, you get one of their perspectives, but it's usually just to like introduce another one of them and yeah. like, look how evil they are compared to this evil person. <laughs> um, or like some funny interaction between them. But you're not really getting like who they are or what motivates them in any like serious way. Uh, but there is, you know, it is hard to... It is it is a task to build empathy without building too much empathy. Yeah, because eventually you have to you have to these the bad guys have to do have to do things that are bad. <laughs> they have to do bad things, and the worse that thing is that they do, um, the harder it is for us to empathize with the choice. Um, you know, we totally understand it when Walter White shoots a bunch of neo-Nazis who killed his friends. Like, we get that. Um, but, you know, when we when we thought he poisoned that kid, or did he poison that kid? Who knows? It's unclear. Like, we can't go along for that ride. So it's it's the more we, in order to empathize with them, we can only go so far with them in their evil acts. And if it's going to be like super duper high fantasy, like Wheel of Time, like where they're going to be like, we're going to murder a city with a volcano, I guess. I've only read the first couple chapters. Um, <laughs> like what, how can I empathize with, with that? Like what is the story that gets me to the point where I go along with them for that ride? Um, That's the story we were trying to play, right? Right. But, and we figure out we couldn't essentially do it. Well, and, and, and because the, because we lived in a world where we were too weak to engage, to fully enact our evil plans. Um, and I think that Mistborn does a great job of this, where eventually you realize that the Lord Ruler, for everything we hated about him, you really saw by the end of that trilogy that he was in over his head and was doing the best he could with what, you know, with the scenario he was in. Um, and at that point, you, you can start to understand it, but... It took Sanderson three books to get us there and, you know, forcing us to see the world through the eyes of a demigod to understand, like, the dimension of chess that the Lord Ruler was playing. Um, and that takes, that's a tough thing to do. And not everybody can do that. Not every book can have the villain actually turn out to be a demigod who is thinking about things on timescales of centuries and also, um, you know, is is piloting a very large ship where even the slightest deviation in course can have huge consequences. So he's keeping a lot of plates spinning and thus things have to be shitty for some people. <laughs> and you can kind of understand it, but again, it took a long time to get there and worked us backwards from a guy we thought was just sneering, evil, black-robed super wizard um, to something else entirely. Right, and it's, a cla it's, it's interesting because it's a classic authoritarian like logic right like i know this is bad 
but in order to make things not terrible, I have to keep them bad. Right. The alternative is worse. Right. And that's sort of, you know, what a lot of tyrants and dictators and things would probably argue that they are doing. Yes. And that raises some interesting questions for the Mistborn series and Sanderson's kind of worldview there. Is he making an argument for authoritarianism or is he saying that these problems are too large for mankind to grapple with and thus making an appeal for divinity, which might be more in line with what we know about him in his uh, personal spiritual life? Um, or, or I propose a second option and actually, uh, I mean, both those are possible. Um, the second one, definitely, probably. Uh, but I would say that, and this actually goes back to my earlier qualms with like the idea of callousness or ruthlessness being, you sort of set it aside from being evil. Am I, I don't put words in your mouth. Am I putting no. that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm actually going to, I think I'm going to backtrack and I'm going to disagree because I think that one interpretation is that someone like, you know, Sanderson for the Ruler or, uh, you know, for Walter White or for a lot of the more nuanced, you know, lawful evil sort of type of people stories we've seen. I actually think that the way to define evil and perhaps then villainy is less about, I have to get this together. It's less about what they are or do and what about what they aren't and don't. Like you can look at the, you know, you can look at a person, in this case, we'll say the Lord Ruler, who is saying that, oh, I have to sort of keep these people oppressed and keep this hierarchy and do all these terrible things to society and kind of sequester rebellion and sequester freedom because if not, everything will go out of whack and the world will end or something like that. I don't think it's quite that extreme, but along those lines. And you can sort of make an apologetic argument just like there was that, and I mentioned in our Stars episode, there was sort of a a strain of imperial apologism for for a brief time, both in-universe and out-in in sort of like people talking internet, like the Thanos was right kind of crowd, right? Like where you're defending evil acts because for the greater good. Um, And you're saying, well, they're not just evil. They're just ruthless. They're just pragmatic. They're just callous. But I'm going to say that I think that's evil because your goodness should prevent those things from happening. And evil is less about what it is that you're doing and more just the absence of like, like you said, a moral compass that's pointing in the right direction. Yeah, but, um, all right, so let's look at the Thanos example. And we have to assume that Thanos genuinely believes that there is this overpopulation resource problem. He genuinely believes that that is true and that he genuinely has thought through every option. And the only option available to him to solve this problem is to do is to wipe out half the population um, in order to save how many future generations. Um and increase the quality of life of those generations. So if he if he believes all of that stuff is genuinely true, can we say that he is evil for doing this thing? Or can we say that, because you could say, oh, his goodness, if he was good, he would have stopped himself. But he didn't see any other alternatives. To him, the greater evil would have been letting the overpopulation problem run its course. Um, this is kind of getting into trolley problem. Mm-hmm territory yeah, which, getting into moral philosophy there right uh, which is the which is the and i'll just rehash it quickly for folks who may not have heard it um it's a thought experiment of um there is a trolley full of a runaway tr- a runaway trolley full of ah shit i'm getting it wrong now 
uh, let's say 10 people and it's approaching a, um, uh, a cliff and, um, but you could pull a lever that diverts it onto another track. But if it goes on that other track, it's going to hit a bystander and kill them. But the 10 people on the trolley will live. Otherwise the trolley goes over the cliff, 10 people die. And, but the bystander lives and there's all, it's, it's a, there's no answer to this. It's just a thought experiment for what is good, what is bad. And in my eyes, if we're talking about evil and Thanos' decision to wipe out half the population in order to save everyone else and save the future, um, he, in his mind, he's doing the right thing for the greater good. And that is a moral act from his perspective. Um, and it is an un, and, it, and it is an unselfish act. Um in the comics where he does it so that he can like make out with the female personification of death. That is an evil and selfish act mm-hmm. because he's doing it for his own gain. Um, whereas as it's presented in infinity war, he thinks he's saving the world. I guess I'll say that obviously, you know, you're right. There's no right or wrong answer to all those questions, but I will say that there's something, there's a sense of uh, a word I'm looking for. It's like a delusion of grandeur that, like, it's his responsibility to solve that. Right. And I think that it's the Lord Ruler's, I mean, in this case, there's reasons for it. But, like, you know, like, there, there's always a reason for it, and usually in the context of, like, they have great power or they have this plan or whatever. But, like, so that's his the hubris, yeah, the yeah. hubris of someone to do that is in itself also potentially evil. The better, the good thing to do is to continue, is, like, you because we all have a lot of every day we make decisions and there's evil things that we could do that would probably make our lives or the lives of the people around us better or society better but we do not do them and we continue to look for better paths because that's what a good person does is they don't take the you know first option they see that is good to them that is bad to everybody else and move forward right like i mean there's definitely obviously complexity there, but I think that that is some, a way that you can, you know, uh, uh, it's not always the best thing, but it's the right thing. I don't know. That's like kind of a naive view of the world, I guess. But like that is a, I think you can put that as a layer between that can differentiate heroes and villains in these situations and where, you know, you look at someone like, you know, can we put the Punisher in this category, right? Like he sees this, as you know certain versions of punisher like the only way to rid the world of crime is to kill criminals and there's a certain logic to that just like there's a certain logic to thanos's view and you know if you're thinking that he's you know genuinely thinking that this is the only way then you can kind of get on the same thought process you have with thanos so i i'm hesitant to hesitant to i'll say this i'll just wrap it this way i'll hesitant to absolve those situations of their evilness just because they thought they were right. Yes. Um, cause usually are you, cause usually at the end of the story, our heroes show them there was another way. <laughs> well, right. But that's, uh, but, but in that case, it's, a, it's a question of arrogance and a, a flaw in their character versus what I would really consider full on evil. Um, to use the Walter White example, like breaking bad begins with the setup of, he has to sell meth to um, pay for his cancer treatment and keep his family afloat. Um, but he keeps getting sucked in deeper and deeper by, you know, happenstance. And, but 
By the end of the series, we realize that the ruthless, callous, um, murderous Walter White is the real Walter White, and that this is really what he wanted all along, um, that doing this made him feel good. And we realize that that was the evil that was lurking in him all along, um, as opposed to just, I, may, I was making the best decision I could at the time. That's how he got into it. But eventually he started making riskier and more evil and sadistic decisions just because he could and because he liked it. And I think the Thanos example is we don't get the impression from this portrayal of Thanos that um, that, yeah, maybe he thought of other ways, but this is the one he really liked. Um, so, again, it's that he was ignorant of other solutions or maybe thought too highly of himself to continue looking for solutions. But to me, that falls into a weakness, not an, not, not an inherent evil. Um, I think there's an argument to be made that says, um, hey, anything that involves genocide is by definition an evil act. <laughs> if you make that choice, that is an evil act. Um, that, there is, that certain things cannot be justified. And I'm open to that conversation, but, um, uh, and in, 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 in the real world scenario, um, I think we can all agree there is no scenario where genocide is the right answer. Um, but in fictional worlds where there is time travel and magical gloves that let you do whatever you want, um, uh, you know, we can, we can talk about the moral gray areas. Yeah. I mean, I always think about the end of, um, Cabin in the Woods because they make, they, they choose to not make that decision, right? They choose yes. to take the the more quote-unquote evil or less evil route, depending on your view of it, right? Um, which I always enjoyed that deeply because you don't see that very often. Uh, I, I know, I think there's a little bit of a... I'm not sure. I think there's a little bit of a chicken or the egg thing when it comes to your Walter Wright example because I sort of think that they're... You said the real Walter Wright white. I'm not positive that that's... He said it's like it's like a weakness. I don't know if I'd say that's the real person who he was, you know, sort of could have been or meant to be. I think there's a lot of like I said, there's a lot of ways we can go as people. And I just feel like I don't know, I'm, I'm having trouble putting words, but I, I just that there will be a point like maybe a good person doesn't have a heel turn. Yeah. And that is where usually the heel turn is is involving an evil situation. Right. Where like they're finally going to do that thing they didn't do before. Um, I'm assuming I'm, it's been a while since I've watched it, but is I would consider that the time when I, the, the heel turn for me for Walter White was when he let Kristen Ritter's characters die. Yeah. I think that that's for most people when he, yeah. I was like, Oh, this guy's evil. And you know, he didn't enjoy it. He, you know, in his mind, he says he has a Thanos logic, right? Well, this girl's probably going to be dead sometime anyway. I'll save, you know, Jesse, the the pain of this, blah, 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 you know, like whatever else. I mean, that's not exactly his logic. His logic was she's going to mess everything up for me. Yes. But um, you could argue there's probably other side concerns for him as well. And but once again, like, I think that that, you know, I don't know. It's like what Thor says. That's what heroes do. Like, <laughs> uh, that's simplistic. But I, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm curious. I, I want to think about this more. I'm getting down a rabbit hole that I'm <laughs> getting turned out of my head a little bit about because uh, villainy's tough. Yeah, but I think it's that, and and there's a lot of question about the nature of evil, right? Like, that is still a open question in the capital P field of philosophy. Right. Like, the nature of evil is still a big question that 
people with multiple PhDs devote their lives to figuring out. I really thought we were going to solve it on this podcast. (laughs) I thought we had it down. But I think when we think about a villain, I think that to me, a villain um, where evil, however we define it, is a key element to being a villain. And evil, and yes, around the edges, but it is a... um, um, but it is a uh, a complete lack of empathy that approaches and oftentimes goes into sadism, where hurting other people is your goal um, and not just a means to an end, but the end in and of itself, then that becomes a part of it um, for making a villain. Um, whether any particular act can be defined as evil is a obviously a difficult question, but on a broader stroke of evil as a approach to the world and approach to other people. I think that is a necessary ingredient in a true villain, as opposed to just a protagonist or excuse me, antagonist. Right. And you know, you're looking at a, at a collective series of actions and, you know, things they say and things they do and not just in you know, isolating individual acts yeah. by themselves. And, and fiction allows us to understand the, um, allows us to understand the, person's state of mind, um, especially literary fiction, allows us to understand exactly what the villain is thinking and feeling as they commit their evil acts. So we know where they're coming from morally, as opposed to television or movies, where sometimes it's a little bit more of a guessing game. And that's part of the fun because we can't see inside their heads. Right. Do you know of any story, uh, any genre fiction story that's that's told entirely from a villain's point of view? Um, there is a comic book mini series. Let me just, um, make sure I'm getting this right. Um, uh, it's a Mark Millar comic called Nemesis. Um, that is basically, it's like a six issue series. What if the Joker was Batman is the question. Um, ironic DC also just did that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, that's, pretty good kind of an experiment on this idea. What if, um, yeah, you really follow this super villainous character. Um, but it's a little superficial, but I think really a Mark Miller story superficial. I can't imagine. (laughs) I can't imagine. Um, but I think that the more you tell it from the villain's perspective, it's that problem of eventually you get to a moral code that we as a reader can't empathize with. Um, and if we can't empathize with the central character, what's the sustainability of that um, character-reader relationship if we can't empathize? Yeah, I wonder, it'd be interesting, I'm sure people have done it, I mean, keep it first from the thought of this, but I would like to see, like, you know, uh, I would like to read a story that is told from a villain's perspective, you know, beginning to end, right? Like, write the story of Val- Lord Valak Orlok, Baron Valak Orlok, as he, uh, as he was, uh, you know beginning to end and make it compelling in a way that's not like it's not gross none of it's possible but i'm curious to to read that story where and it literally ends with like them being killed by heroes and like the heroes are the antagonists of the story in a way that in a way that's very different from like a horror movie or something like that yeah i mean i think that because we, we see a lot of like antagonists v and like for lack of a term like villains v villain stories like we'll see things where it's like you know like Oh, Walter Wright's a bad guy. and He's fighting other bad guys. And that's we're going to root for the less bad, bad guy. But like an actual story where you're watching where the protagonist is a villain and the antagonists are heroes 
And yeah, I think it's tough because I think that we as humans have a natural, like, you know, we, where you put the heroes on the opposite side, the people who are doing the right thing. And then you have the villain. And I, um, because historically, anytime, you know, we've been following the mobster, well, the cops are corrupt or, um, it's the mobster versus the worst mob. Um, it's really tough to have it just be the bad guy, a true villain because they become irredeemable because they've got a perverse moral code. Um, I think that I keep coming back to Inquisitor Glockta from the first law series. Like he's a genuinely despicable person. Yeah. He, he does some genuinely despicable things for no conceivable reason. Um, he has a lot of alternatives to some of the things he does in those books. Um, and his motivation for doing these awful things in the name of the crown is pretty weak. Um, and again, he, there are other things he could have done, but he does some despicable things. Um, so that's the closest I can think of. Yeah, there's a lot. I guess there's a lot of stuff from like Vader's perspective, like comics and a book or two. Yeah. That, you know, but it, it's so rooted in that like tortured existence, which is not what I'm looking for. Well, we've, we've kind of done that, you know, and the Vader stories, the Vader comics that I've read, they're generally generally good, but um, generally they find the moral center. The moral center of those books is not Vader himself. Um, there's usually a sidekick character um, in the early comics. It's this kind of almost female space Indiana Jones who becomes this kind of uh, sidekick. And she is the moral center. He's the protagonist. But he does evil things that we may or may not understand, but we kind of get her judgment on them. So that helps us as a reader, like, not feel like we're complicit in his monstrosity. Yeah, I guess that's the big problem is that you don't want to feel like you're reading pornography for evil people. Right. Right. And that's something that you can run into, hinted at earlier about D&D, where it's like, Oh, I'm going to play this evil guy. I'm going to rape that girl. I was just like, no, you're not going to do that. Like, yeah. we're not going down that road. And like, you know, that's just not something that, I mean, it, it, it's happened in game groups I've been in. And it's just, you know, it, it's, it's not, you, you, it can get gross very quickly. Yeah. And I think that was, I've been reading a lot about, you know, problematic creators and problematic art and an interesting concept that I came across was this idea of complicitness and, um, does the art ask you to be complicit in um, monstrous acts? And um, the example that this author gave was uh, she was talking about trying to make sense of who Johnny Depp is in reality versus her love of the movie Edward Scissorhands. And she talks about a scene in Edward Scissorhands where um, he, Edward, um, accidentally cuts his girlfriend, hurts her with his scissor hands, and um, feels hurt and ashamed by doing this now, of course. Um, and the movie follows him and we pay more attention to his, his broken heart about having done this than her physical injury. And the argument is that the movie, by asking us to empathize more with him and how this made him feel and less with her and the fact that she was physically hurt, it is making us complicit in a worldview that, um, violence, even accidental, is more about how it makes the man feel. And it asks us to be complicit in that. And there's certain 
comic books, I keep coming back to Mark Millar, where, <laughs> you know, it's from the bad guy's perspective. And it kind of wants us to cheer for the bad guy and cheer for what they're doing. And it kind of makes us complicit in the acts that the character is doing. Whereas the Vader comics, by giving us that Dr. Afra character to kind of experience it through and letting her make moral judgments on what he's doing, we're not as complicit in him murdering planets <laughs> because we're not we're we're a step removed from what's going on. How does that work in in juxtaposition to like horror movies? Um so in horror movies I think that um generally and and thinking about primary slasher style movies. Mm-hmm where we're really kind of rooting for the bad guy. Um, generally, the victims are, uh, we're given reasons not to like them. And we're also given a moral framing that what the killer is doing is bad. It is fun to watch, but it is bad. Um, but also, those sexy teens really had it coming. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, those movies are very problematic because um, in a lot of ways they ask us to be complicit, but also they ask us to be complicit in a lot of things that are so cartoonish and so exaggerated that we get that removal, even though we don't have a clear moral center character. Although we usually do, it's usually the final girl in those. Right. She's the moral center. Um and usually she's the only one who's not making out. Uh, weird 80s. What's going on? <laughs> um, but it's that, uh, yeah, you get that those steps of removal versus something that really asks you to get in the villain's head, asks you to understand, asks you to sympathize with heinous acts is probably just going to be a, a, a rough read for people. Yeah, I'd be more interested in, you know, obviously I don't really want to follow a, a book of a, a sadi- like in the mind of a sadistic you know, insane serial killer or the Joker or those are not, A, they'd be boring as hell, but uh, it also wouldn't be, wouldn't be good in that way. My mind would be more on like a, you know, like you're following the Lord Ruler or Dracula or Tywin Lannister, where it's just like, you know, that root, like back to that ruthlessness, callousness of like, it's not so much about, but, but, but stepped up a notch to that they are truly a villain, right? That was someone we would identify as a villain. Like, what would Lord of the Rings look like from Saruman's perspective? Not Saruman, because that's ridiculous, but... Well, that know. book's been written. From Saruman's perspective? Uh, well, from, from the perspective of the orcs. The orcs, yeah, yeah, that book's been written. That's different, though, because the orcs aren't really, like, the villains of the story. They're just the henchmen. But someone... I guess, the other, I guess the other thing about this story is it's probably a lot boring because I feel like most villains just sit there going, mm, yes, my plans. <laughs> like reading yes. a whole book of, yes, oh, yes, my plans would probably not be very interesting. But, oh, interesting. Uh, do you have any, uh, who's your favorite villain, Greg? My favorite villain? Oh, boy. That's a That's tough a curveball, isn't it? Yeah, man. Jeez, I feel like I'm not prepared for that. <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, uh, favorite villain um you know i really like agent smith from the matrix because he hates humanity so much and is just dripping off of him uh and his disdain for humanity is just so you just you just hate him so much Mm -hmm. um and i think hugo weaving does such a great job with that role um he's just a lot of fun to watch um yeah i think i fall into that more like almost 
Disney villain style of like, I just like, I like a villain who revels in their villainy and choose the scenery and is just really over the top and unrealistic, but just a ton of fun to watch. Like I really enjoyed Bane and Dark Knight Rises <laughs> because he was just such a, just dripping with evil. Um, Cause to me, that's a villain villain. Like their plan doesn't even need to make a lot of sense. They're just, they're just there to say cool things. <laughs> oh man, it's I, my my appreciation is so shallow, but you know, but I really love that those you know like again, I keep coming back to like Disney villains, like um like Scar from The Lion King, like he's just so uh, just so evil all the time. Yeah, I definitely like a, like a Doctor Doom kind of men, kind of guy. Yeah, just like I mean, your name is literally Doctor Doom. Come on. Yes. Yeah, that's a good villain, and he has that level of arrogance and superiority that we all kind of wish we could have sometimes Mm -hmm. and like there's a little bit of a power fantasy in somebody like dr doom where you're like yeah man if i was a sorcerer who ran my own country i wouldn't take a lot of shit from reed richards either (laughs) that nerd can't talk to me like that (laughs) (laughs) oh yeah no you're absolutely right i don't really know that i have i don't know if i have a favorite. I don't know what my favorite villain would be. I threw that question out, knowing that it's gonna come back to me, and I'm just like, oh shit, what am I gonna say? And I um, really like, and I'm I'm really looking forward to when Glass comes out, uh, Mr. Glass from Unbreakable, because um, his his villainy is is an entire is a search for validation um, that feels very human to me, and very like um, there's something that speaks to a teenage Greg Park about. Um, uh, that embrace of alienation, um, and, you know, looking for belonging in, 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 uh, you know, in the dark side, um, that I I think is really good. And plus Samuel L. Jackson. Yeah. Tough not to like. Yeah. I, um, two, two like recent villains that I've come to, I really identify as people like for two very different reasons and not necessarily for things that actually even align with like our, uh, what we discussed today on this episode, but more just like reveling in villainy and being evil. Um, in the first season of the flash, the reverse flash, the way they, they make him really menacing in a way that's hard to like describe. And there's the scene where we're basically like the flash is just like, why are you doing this? Like, why do you, why are you doing all these evil things? And he, he just says, because I hate you. <laughs> and that's like his, his, that's all his reasoning is. And like, the delivery of the line and the way that he interact, they interact together. It's just like, yeah, he really hates him. And that's all the reason he needs. And it's really weird because it flies completely in the face of like, Oh, he's like this like complex villain with all these things he's trying to accomplish and like the heel turn, but like just the, like you just feel it and you're like, yeah, I mean, if you hate someone that much, you probably do some real messed up things to get to hurt them. Yeah. And, um, so that's like fun, a different way. And then the, so weirdly enough in another CW show in supernatural, um, the devil, Lucifer, um, Lucy, as everyone calls him affectionately. Uh, yeah. no, everyone calls him that people make him good. Yeah. Fans call him that, but people, not people in the show do not call him that because he will kill them. Uh, he, his character is like a kind of reoccurring character, um, off and on for different points of the series. And a, the actor who plays him is just like phenomenal. Cause it plays this very, like, I don't know, like it, at points, it almost seems like they're trying to humanize him, but then they immediately, like, pull the rug out from under you to, like, remember, like, this is the devil. And 
the, you know, they go into his backstory, and like he described earlier, like, oh, he's just he's jealous of God and angry at God because of blah, 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 whatever else. But they don't really, like, relish in that melodrama so much. Um, and when they do, it's it's usually at, at its worst. But there's something about his flippancy towards humans, kind of like you said about, um, and disdain, like you said, for, for Mr. Smith, Agent Smith, of just, like, he just doesn't get it. He's just like, humans are just like blobs of meat. And I don't really understand why everyone gets so mad when I kill them. <laughs> just like, just like completely, but like enjoys it, but doesn't really get why people get so upset about it. And there's something about that, you know, he's that arrogance, that oblivious, like obliviousness of just like your surroundings, that there's something fun to that kind of villain too. Yeah. Um, hmm. I don't know. I have to think about that. Maybe I'll have a, maybe I'll have picked a, a better version, a better my truly favorite villain from like a, a good story writing perspective next time, perhaps. Yeah. But I think when you get into that, like good story villain, who's the hero of their own story, that kind of villain, you end up with somebody who's not as much a villain, you know, mm-hmm. they start to become that, you know, an antagonist, a really well-written antagonist, um, you know, that, wow, this person really has some depth and their own goals. And boy, maybe, maybe if I was in their situation, I'd be doing just what they're doing and get into that. And it's like, that's not as much of a villain in the way that, you know, Ursula from the little mermaid is a villain. (laughs) Yeah. I will say that, um, a, a person that's scratching that itch for me right now, and there's still a lot of story to be told. So I'm going to reserve judgment till, you know, when I'm 80 or whatever, but, uh, Odium, which is the the big bad of the Stormlight Archives, you know, Sanderson's big uh, opus he's working on, which are only book three of ten. Mm-hmm. Uh, he is walking a fine line of, like, compelling and interesting, but also, like, kind of scenery-chewing and epic and, you know, reminds you of a classic high fantasy or Disney movie villain where it's just like, man, this guy really is just evil, but... <laughs> I do bad shit because... Because it's fun, right? You know, that kind of villain, and it's actually like it's it's well, I won't go into it, but there's sort of like almost like a reason for that, like part mm-hmm. of you know it's kind of an interesting thing, but yeah, you'll find out someday when you want to delve into a well. I mean, if you make it through the whole wheel of time, man, this the sky is open I'll, to you. The, the world is your 60. oyster. I'll be <laughs> sixty at that point. <laughs> Maybe uh, I really first, make- this first book is thirty hours on audiobook. That's not that bad. So if I read that at, if I get through that at one and a half speed. Um, Is that I'm what you listen, listen to one and a half speed? Uh, yeah. For some. Yeah. Okay. Um, it, it's going to take me 20 hours to get through. How many books are there? 14. 14. So let's assume they're all similar length. I know they're not, but let's assume they are. <laughs> they at are one not. and a half speed. What am I looking at? 300 hours. Um, you put more time to that in certain video games. That's that's incorrect, sir. <laughs> um, the uh, so and uh, I spent about an hour in the car. Well, I could do it in a year if it's all I listened to. Actually, the first the first book's longer than I thought. Uh, quick Google search tells me that the longest book is forty two hours. Good. Um, but yeah, this is actually uh, they're all about between twenty five and forty. Yeah. So if I listen to them on my commutes exclusively um i could maybe be done in a year two two years yeah I drive to work uh, every day wheel of time the wikipedia tells me that the total listening time is 19 days five hours and 25 minutes yeah cool <laughs> cool you can subtract 12 <laughs> hours from that because that's the pro the pre the prequel book that you don't need to read oh good <laughs> 19 days all right i mean 
I could check my Steam stats and tell you how many hours I've played Eternal. That's probably pretty embarrassing. That's not including what's on my phone. <laughs> I don't see the connection. Anyway, yeah. we gotta wrap this up. We do gotta wrap this up. Uh, maybe next time we'll uh, we'll delve into... We wanted to make sure we got to this and didn't do what we did last episode, which was get pulled away on different things. Just talking about bad cartoons on Netflix. <laughs> well, you know, it happens. Uh, yeah, so... Um, let I us guess, know what your favorite villain is. Yeah. Or if you really think that our, um, you know, take is wrong. Because it could be. I mean, it's Greg talking, so it probably is. Zing, I guess. <laughs> you went along with me on this. I know, I know. I, I actually think we're, we're in agreement for the most part. Um, for the most part. I'm still holding out. But uh, I think we can definitely commit to a, a more frequent release schedule. Not once every two months. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're right. And uh yeah, so All right, guy. Talk soon. Talk soon. And it's it's 848 hours in Eternal on Steam, by the way. 848 for you? I mean, some of that might be like I left my computer on and had the client open, but It would have to be. Uh you don't want to ask me how many hours I put into League of Legends back in the day. Yeah, I mean, I put 53 into Witcher. Yeah, but that's a good God. 800 hours of Eternal. There's no way. Now think about no how many way. hours you put into Eternal. Um, I can tell you uh, on Steam, 104. Maybe double that with mobile. So maybe 200. I don't know. But anyway, I have way longer than you. Anyhow, we'll clear up something. No one cares about that. Um, <laughs> no, I'm saying this is staying in. I'm moving it to the front. We're going to be the first gonna thing become, We're going to become the true villains of this podcast if we don't shut up. God damn it. All right, All right. buddy. I'll talk to you soon. Later.